Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Paul Watson, Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist, National Magazine Award winner, best-selling author. Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about Afghanistan. We are abandoning Afghanistan for the same reason we invaded it, because that's what the Americans are doing. We'll take a look at the coverage. And if Justin Trudeau is Veruca Salt, does that make Aaron O'Toole Augustus Gloop? <laughs> Not these days, Paul. Have you, have you seen Aaron O'Toole lately? That is a that's a thirst trap conservative. Mercy. Glad to have you here. Thanks very much. I despair for the future of our country, Jesse. Well, every week we do that. Sure. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to listeners by Brian Jackson, Sherry Little, Susan Rhodes, William Holmes, Sandra Bauer, Patrick Casey, Wendy Morohovitz. And Majd al-Shihabi. Hi, my name is Majd al-Shihabi. I'm a technologist and urban planner based in Toronto. I support Canada Land because it provides us with a critical perspective. It also gives us an alternative business model to support for the production of news. Mm-hmm. 
Desperate to flee Taliban rule, Afghans are resorting to this, grasping at U.S. military aircraft and risking their lives. At least seven people were killed on that tarmac today. While all Canadian diplomats have now left the country, Hundreds of Afghan allies who worked for Canada are still trapped there. Fear cuts through the voice of an Afghan interpreter who we are calling Khan for his safety. Afghan interpreters were critical to Canada's military in Afghanistan. And as aides to Canadians, their need to flee has become even more desperate. A former Canadian Army interpreter says the Afghan government is trying to calm the rising sense of panic and putting up roadblocks for those who wish to leave. Morrow is still in contact with his interpreter in Afghanistan. It's someone he always promised would someday move to Canada and someone this country, he says, has a moral obligation to help. Paul, uh, to review what what listeners uh, are likely already familiar with, the somber reality, the chaotic reality in Afghanistan right now, uh, of course, this past Sunday, Canada suspended diplomatic operations in Afghanistan. Uh, We closed our embassy in Kabul. And we encourage Canadians to come back. Uh, That, of course, was the same day that Justin Trudeau uh, announced an election. And uh, the world has been watching as just all hell has broken loose. And just this remarkable footage. I can't really think of anything like it that I've seen in my life of Afghans so desperate to leave that they are literally chasing a U.S.-bound plane down the tarmac uh, and and grasping onto it. Some of them uh, later falling to their death, we are told. On and on it goes as we try to grapple with this this exit, this, I think, botched and blundered exit. Before we get into the coverage, you have reported from Afghanistan, correct? That's right. Uh, you know, starting way back in December of 1996, when the first Taliban government was freshly in Kabul. What do you make and what have you made of the news coverage this past week? Any expert, anyone with... Uh, any experience in Afghanistan will tell you that it is a complicated place. Forgive the use of the term, but it's a a tribal society. And there are very few outsiders who understand those complexities. So when you see a collapse of the Afghan government as quickly as the one we just witnessed, understanding those relationships is essential because that's where the deals are done. And, And they're not done Suddenly, shifting coalitions occurred over months, years. And way back in 2001, I witnessed how this happened. I can can tell you about it if you you want to hear it. I I think it would be a mistake to have you here and not ask you about that. There's a, a mountain range north of Kabul, and high up in the mountains, there's a tunnel that takes you to what's called the Salang Pass. Uh, it was built by the Soviets largely to make a you know more efficient route for their, their military equipment when they invaded way back in 1979. When the Taliban first took uh, control of Kabul in 1996, the remaining forces were led by a legendary commander named Ahmad Shah Massoud. As he retreated north, he blew up the Salang Tunnel. So come 2001, when I was back, you had to go through a dark tunnel that was full of, you know, twisted rebar and huge chunks of concrete. It was literally like climbing uh, small mountains in the darkness. So you make your way through the tunnel, and then you end up at a front line on a narrow track in the mountains. The Taliban are on one side of the front line. The remaining fighters of the North, what was called the Northern Alliance, are on the southern side of it. The final morning when I went up there, I met the commander, 
of the Northern Alliance forces on a horse, who was next to the commander of the Taliban forces, also on a horse. And I was literally jogging along, and the interpreter was shouting my questions, and I said, Commander, what's happening? You told me that there would be a fight, so I'm here to watch, and now you're riding horses with the Taliban. And he said, he's my cousin. We, we, we grew up together. My older brother was his friend. We have been sending letters back and forth across the front line for months discussing how we could reconcile. And that happened. And then they moved together, Taliban and Northern Alliance, toward Kabul to help liberate the city. So the lesson of that is that alliances in Afghanistan can shift very quickly. And they do. They're constantly moving. And you you really need to understand local relationships if if you're going to try to understand what's coming next. That's fascinating. And that's certainly fascinating given the news this week and given like Joe Biden framing this in the way that he did, which saying like, well, why should we continue to fight for Afghans if they're not willing to fight for themselves in terms of any resistance to the Taliban just collapsing as if it's like, well, this is what you get if, if you don't have the courage to fight for yourself. And especially after 20 years of basically constricting a good guy, bad guy narrative, the reality that these alliances are a lot more liquid and that Afghans knew that the U.S. would be pulling out and their allies. That was telegraphed. Trump was in a big hurry to get it. This was known for a long time. So when we look at this as if somehow this is what they deserve for failing to resist the Taliban, I think that that's a really necessary bit of of context and complexity that stands in contrast to the official U.S. government narrative. I want to focus a bit, if if we can, on the... um, Canadian media narrative, because I'm fascinated with how quickly things gel into a focus, a framework of like what we care about. And it seemed to me in listening to the CBC and reading, I mean, this was on global news. It was again and again about the primary interest was we are abandoning the interpreters and the local fixers. Journalists had translators military personnel had local uh, translators who were more than translators. And we hear on the current from a Canadian uh, military veteran saying, well, there's this guy who saved my life and we're abandoning him. And on global news, we have a report, interpreters are fleeing Afghanistan. What's happening and how's Canada helping uh, Afghan interpreters call for faster resettlement program? I get the argument that, uh, wow, we asked these people to put themselves in harm's way to help us, and now we're, we're cutting and running. And I also get from a practical point of view, when newsrooms are looking to cover this, well, we, we know someone, and they speak English. Let's call up the interpreter. But somehow, Paul, this seems to me to become like, that's what we're – what about the entire population of this country that we participated in an invasion, which is another way of saying that we invaded? If the interpreters – are now vulnerable to the Taliban. What about their families? What about their cousins? What about the entire, like, is this not an occasion for us to go back and have a wider focus and ask what we were doing there to begin with and whether or not we're going to join America on their next international adventure? I know that you've had direct relationships with interpreters there. I'm wondering what you think about what I just said. It's complicated. There are some people whose lives are at direct risk. I'm, I'm working to try to get somebody out of Kandahar right now. I know that the Taliban knows him because when we were working together as part of our, our work, we had to ask the Taliban questions. And in the, the course of doing so, 
the, the Taliban would sometimes call my Afghan colleague to complain about what I was writing. <laughs> so one of the most important lessons of war, of war is don't believe your own propaganda. And the, the Canadian government, our American friends, others have constantly been portraying the Taliban as terrorists. They are a disciplined military force and any Canadian soldier who's honest, who, who engaged them in Kandahar, will tell you the same. So when we, we enter the catastrophe that we're in now, without a plan to deal with it, it's worse than, than shocking to me. It's, it's a disgrace. And you're right, there are serious implications for moving hundreds of thousands of educated Afghans out of the country. Because that, that, that happened when the Soviets invaded, and then the Americans backed the Mujahideen, as we know, and the Soviet Union collapsed, and then everyone just left Afghanistan to rot, because most of the people who, who had the, the capability to govern the place had left. And, you know, Afghanistan has a lot of great infrastructure now, uh, and, and they have institutions that the, that the Taliban can use if they choose, but... I suspect that as this chaos spreads, that there will be foreign forces, because there always are, who will choose to meddle. And then the cycle just continues all over again. And, and it's too much of this. It's 40 years of this. Do we want another half century? It's just the whole narrative is so strange to me. I hear like, you know, phrases like our Afghans. We're specifically talking about our Afghans on front burner in this possessive sense or CTV nationalists talking about deserving Afghan families. And I hear you talking about let's move educated Afghan families out and, and, and the complexities of that. It's the whole country that we are now we've, we have meddled and we bear some level of, of, of moral burden. And yet we still are trapped by our own propaganda. I saw something play out this week that was really concerning. Foreign Affairs Minister Mark Garneau initially on Monday was asked, you know, are you going to recognize the Taliban? Like, if this is who you're leaving there to lead these people, is uh, Canada's government going to work with them? And I think that he actually said the judicious and diplomatic thing, which is it's too early to say. But immediately the conservatives were in, in election season and the conservatives pounced on that. And uh, here's Trudeau's minister saying he's open to recognizing the Taliban as the legitimate government of Afghanistan. They're a terrorist group that doesn't let girls go to school, says the conservative party. And immediately Trudeau not wanting to give that political cudgel to O'Toole. And that's a very vulnerable place for Trudeau. Oh, you're soft on the Taliban. You're soft. You want to talk to the terrorists. That's consistent with how they want to portray Trudeau. So he immediately, I think for completely cynical political reasons, it seems, says, okay, no, actually, Garneau was off base. We have no plans to recognize the Taliban. So we've gotten the politicization of that, which I think might potentially do a huge disservice to the people of, of Afghanistan. All for optics. I agree with you completely. The, the, we, we need to be careful because uh, I, I presume you, uh, most Canadians care very much about the basic rights of Afghan people to have security and prosperity and, and, and just raise their children uh, in, in, to, for a better future the way we want to. If that is your goal, you need to be careful what you do each day from now on. I know that politicians say one thing while their diplomats are doing quite the opposite, because again, I experienced this in 1996. When I was trying to get into Afghanistan for the first time, 
I, I just went to the visa window at the Taliban embassy in Pakistan, in Islamabad, and, you know, filled out my application. And, and it was clear after two or three days that I was getting the runaround. They had no plan to give me a visa. So some kind person sort of whispered to me and said, go to your embassy and ask them to support your application. So I did that, and I got an appointment with the political officer at the embassy. He said, as it turns out, I'm meeting with the Taliban ambassador tomorrow. Why don't you come and I'll introduce you? And at the time, Canada did not have relations, diplomatic relations with the Taliban regime. But we were still friendly with them and we were still talking to them. And, you know, I, I could give you a much worse example. When the Taliban fell in 2001, I, I wanted to do a quick story in Kabul in, in the very early days of the remnants of the Taliban government. So I went into different ministry offices looking for what was left. And for some reason, we ended up at the Ministry of Oil and Mineral Resources, which, you know, given the state of Afghanistan at the time, it, it was it was a, a ruin. The whole country was in ruins because they'd had, had years of civil war. So I was sort of shocked to find that they even had a Ministry of Oil and Natural Resources and and there was the deputy minister sitting at his desk in an empty office with a ragged copy of Time magazine. I think it was several years old on his desk. And that was it. No phone, no typewriter, nothing. And so we started to chat. And to my shock, he described how senior Taliban officials had been hosted by the Clinton administration in Houston. Uh, and all of this was organized by a man named Zalme Khalizad, and people will recognize his name popping up uh, f from time to time uh, over, the, over the past uh, a couple of decades. Most recently, he was head of U.S. negotiations with the Taliban in Doha. But if you go back uh, more than a couple of decades, he was a consultant to a U.S. oil company called Unical. And the reason that the Clinton administration had hosted a senior Taliban officials in Houston was to discuss building a pipeline from Central Asia, the former Soviet republics, which were oil rich. They needed to build a pipeline across Afghanistan and terminate it at Karachi so that it could be loaded onto tankers. The Clinton administration, while decrying abuses of women and the various human rights abuses, was secretly talking to the Taliban about building a pipeline. And, and the worst part of the story for me was um, I eventually confirmed with the Northern Alliance, uh, what was left of it, that the Clinton administration had sent a senior State Department official, a woman, who personally met with Ahmad Shah Massoud in his mountain redoubt uh, and urged him to surrender to the Taliban. They wanted complete peace with that surrender so they could build an oil pipeline. And yet one of the strongest voices demanding rights for women and children is Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton's alongside with her. The hypocrisy reeks. It, it's, it, it enrages me. I shake when, when I think about how much hypocrisy there is in Western relations with Afghanistan. 
Paul, I, I got to say, I feel like that hypocrisy is not just at an official level. You know, you were saying some very uh, generous minded things before about how all well-meaning people want the best for um, the Afghan people. I think that's maybe generally true in the sense that I hope that everybody's nice and happy and safe. But uh, the truth of the matter is that I, I, I'm a little bit leery of the rending of garments and the big emotional displays this week about, oh, our, 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 our Afghan buddies, we're leaving them high and dry. It's been 20 years of suffering since we meddled. Uh, I don't think that anybody cared uh, in any kind of active way, like to care for something the way that you might care for a child or a plant uh, a week ago or a month ago or a year ago or 10 years ago. We kind of forgot that we had anything to do with this. And I feel like the uh, the media machinery has built such a monster out of the Taliban that if we discuss it at all, it'll be only to uh, just sort of browbeat ourselves for leaving people at the mercy of this human rights abusing government. You know, I, I notice that the Taliban are, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about even back then they cared about what was written about them. They're a bit more engaged in PR than I expected them to be. And, you know, there was a Taliban representative being interviewed by a female journalist on Afghanistan television. And they seem to be trying to offer the world assurances that, like, we want to be recognized, we want to uh, govern, and we are not necessarily who you think we are. I kind of wonder if... If we learn nothing from this, maybe it's that the narrative device that we've placed over this entire region and this entire escapade has failed us utterly, and we might need to rethink this uh, if we are going to actually accept that we have some level of responsibility. You're touching uh, on what I think is a central point of war reporting. It's easy enough to get a camera crew together or you know, a reporter and a photographer and, and, and sign up with the Canadian military and hang out on Kandahar Air Base and do that kind of stuff. But all you're doing is working as a tool of propaganda. And 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 I know that sounds severe, so let me explain it. You feel that way about, about your work as a foreign correspondent? Uh, some of it, you know, to, to prepare for speaking with you today, because, uh, the, you know, this spans uh, more than two decades. I, I read some of my earlier stuff to refresh my memory, and it's stomach-churning. It shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that in warfare, information is a weapon. And the Taliban are not terrorists in caves. You just get a completely different impression of who they are when you spend some time with them. And and don't anyone interpret that as meaning that I like the Taliban. As a journalist, I have to talk to all sorts of people I don't like. But I try to understand who they are and where they're coming from, because I'm interested in in the reality, not in the propaganda. If you're a journalist covering a war, if you don't understand that everyone is trying to use you as one of their weapons of propaganda, then you shouldn't be there. And, And that's important because you need to know that everyone is lying to you. The politicians are lying to you. The military is lying to you. And and people will think, well, that's a bit severe. Uh, I urge you to read the most recent reporting uh, by a guy named Craig Whitlock at the Washington Post, who, who went into all the documents, the thousands of pages of them, that show precisely how they were lying. All these stories of progress and et cetera, et cetera, they knew that this was a house of cards. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you the most important lie, which, you know, interviews today, it just doesn't come up. 
the central reason that our adventure in Afghanistan was pointless is that we never persuaded the Pakistanis to stop giving refuge to Taliban fighters. There will be time, it's probably too early because the emergency is, is unfurling in front of us. But at some point, journalists ought to ask people, why did you think you could win when the Taliban were supported by your closest ally in the region, Pakistan? And you know, we're, we're, we're talking about journalism, so, so I can tell you, when I was working for the LA Times uh, on these stories, I actually had an editor tell me when I was trying to get them to publish a story uh, from Pakistan, where I was, you know, trying to give a detailed picture of how the Pakistanis were betraying Western allies by directly supporting the Taliban. And a desk editor said to me, you know, you have to understand the public mood here. And that was her way of saying that, you know, Americans don't want to hear we're losing. Americans don't want to hear we're being stabbed in the back by our closest ally in the region. And so I said to her, do, you know, do, do, do you want to think about the public mood or do you want to tell them the truth? And we are still dealing with that problem. To end our conversation talking about the media, and I'm not talking about the LA Times, Davide Mastracci, writing for Passage here in Canada, had a look at the editorial positions of Canadian newspapers at the time that we were contemplating uh, joining this escapade in Afghanistan. Globe and Mail supported it. Toronto Star supported it. Montreal Gazette supported it. Ottawa Citizen supported it. Vancouver Sun supported it. The National Post supported it. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. 
Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Paul Watson, we duly note things in the news that uh, people may not otherwise be paying enough attention to. You know, we paid attention before to what was happening with the old growth logging and the protests against it at Ferry Creek, British Columbia. And, you know, they were corralling media. The RCMP were arresting people and keeping those arrests from the eyes of the media. Media took the RCMP to court. They won. Wonderful day for press freedom in Canada. Cops don't care. Uh, Most of the media has left, but there are still some reporters there. And, yeah, they're getting arrested. The RCMP have arrested a photographer for uh, Victoria Buzz. Colin Smith. They arrested a bunch of the protesters, including a minor, 13 people. They're they're still keeping the media away from mass arrests. We're hearing lots of troubling things about how the Mounties are behaving. And I think that the rules, Paul, of this, uh, you know, constant dance between the cops and reporters, where the cops are constantly trying to kind of push and constrain us, and then we fight back, and then sometimes they recognize that we have a right to be there, and then sometimes we have to take them to court, and then a court victory is considered like, okay, now we can do our jobs, we got a court victory. Cops don't give a shit. Uh, The rules have changed because the reporters no longer have big institutional support. They're not from CBC, Globe and Mail. They're, They're from little outlets, and they're getting pushed around like never before. Duly noted, it's a disgrace that the big media companies are not supporting the, the independent journalists in this. They've got the political weight. They've got the money. Why are they not standing up for press freedom? Why are they leaving it to the little guys? Sad. What do you have to do, Lino, Paul? Uh, staying in British Columbia, yesterday marked the first anniversary of a protest, which includes a man named Tim Takaro. Tim Takaro first climbed into the trees in the Brunette River Conservation Area in the city of Burnaby, which is a suburb of Vancouver, not far from me. And they did this a year ago, he and his supporters, uh, to try to stop the expansion of the Trans Mountain Tar Sands Pipeline from Alberta. I duly note this now because I think people have forgotten that the pipeline existed, but a U.S.-based company wanted to expand it. And when they got tired of the delays, they told the Trudeau government, we're going to walk. And I, as I remember it, this happened very quickly uh, over a weekend. Uh, our former disgraced finance minister quickly announced that Canada, meaning you and me and all the other taxpayers, will bail out this U.S. oil company, buy their pipeline, and complete the expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I urge any investigative journalist listening, please investigate that deal. Uh, we paid too much, we acted too quickly, and now we're stuck with expanding a tar sands pipeline as the world is on fire. Th- there's got to be a crime in there somewhere, and I urge someone to find it. Duly noted. One last one here. If you're not reading about these things that we duly note or anything with um, a political dimension on Facebook, on your newsfeed in Facebook, or if you're just reading a lot less newsy political stuff on Facebook, that is by design. Uh, CBC reports that Canadians will see less politics on Facebook during the election. Kevin Chan, who uh, is uh, the guy who kind of runs Facebook stuff in Canada, says one of the things that we're doing, which we've been doing since February, is looking at the ways that we can reduce the distribution of political content. 
We're not removing political content. This is just a question of whether, you know, people say they want to see five or six things in a session. We got to rank them in some way. So what's actually going on here? Uh, I think people should be very aware, and this is part of the larger conversation of what's happening with news and fake news and all of this kind of like Facebook and, and news relationship stuff is when misinformation and fake news became maybe the biggest liability in Facebook's massive business interest, the ways in which they dealt with it include, okay, We'll just give you a lot less news. Let's give the people what they want. And I have no doubt that if you go to the people and you say, do you want to see more political shit on Facebook or less? They'll say, oh, yeah, less. And, you know, they're smart. And, I, I, you know, it's probably what I would do if I were making these decisions. You don't remove the news. That's censorship. You just change the algorithm so it doesn't show up so much. And, you know, to deal with these messy questions of like, well, we're getting all this shit for misinformation and fake news. Well, we got two options here. We can either like take on the responsibility of being the ones who determine whether news is good or bad, which seems like a lot of trouble and we can't get a robot to do it, which is how we like to do things. Or we can just sort of like get a list of the good news and maybe the government can make that list for us. And so that is the process that is underway. And I think throttling of political stuff is part of it. Listeners will know that I have my own disclosure here. As Facebook is deciding on a category of legit news and then everything else, Canada Land is very much trying to get into that category of legit news because part of our job is to make sure that our stuff gets seen and read by people and has impact. And Facebook, uh, for their own purposes, want to pay news outlets that make the cut. And uh, we, 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 we like that too. But, uh, you know, that doesn't constrain me from offering my analysis of what is actually going on here. When you have the newspaper lobby in concert with the government smacking them on on a, on a daily basis in the pages of, of every major newspaper for fake news and with policy threats, this is how Facebook will respond. And this is the new regime of information in Canada. It disturbs me to hear that, that you have to deal with an algorithm which is making it difficult for people to hear these conversations. Duly noted. I want the works. I want the whole works. Presents and prizes and sweets and surprises of all shapes and sizes. And now, don't care how I want the majority. All right. It's sort of lost in audio, uh, but uh, Paul... Uh, the face of Veruca Salt was was replaced with Justin Trudeau's face. Very poorly, very poorly slapped on the implication being that Justin Trudeau is a spoiled little girl who just wants his majority. And that was the ad that went viral and got everybody talking, I guess talking for the first time in this election cycle and, and before about Aaron O'Toole and the conservatives. Not in a nice way. But they were talking about the conservatives. What did you think about that ad that was so widely uh, ridiculed? I despair because wh where are the grown-ups? Where, where are the smart people running this country? They, they, they seem to have all disappeared. You know, we get the politics we deserve. Um, that's, that's it. This is my analysis of it, okay? That ad, everybody was talking about it to make fun of it. And then there was a similar thing when the conservatives put out their, their platform. They formatted it like a men's health cover. And Aaron O'Toole, who's really been getting in shape, is posing and looks a lot like Mr. Clean and is airbrushed to hell. And it has this weird come-hither creepy look on his glossy face. And people were like, what the f that You know, that's a strange flex from the conservatives. And those two things, everyone was making fun of them. But... 
Aaron O'Toole has failed to get anyone to even notice him previous to this. And, and you know, we can talk about the failures there, all the different days in which Trudeau was enraging Canadians through the pandemic where Aaron O'Toole failed to seize the spotlight and, and you know, effectively present opposition, criticize in a way that felt like it had any gravitas to it. And I don't think that prior to these ads, one in a thousand Canadians could name Aaron O'Toole as the leader of the Conservatives. I don't know, Paul. Like, the argument goes, like, am I saying that any attention is good attention? Like, I suppose if Aaron O'Toole shat himself while delivering a speech, everyone would know his name uh, uh, all of a sudden as well. That doesn't mean he's going to be prime minister. However, what would make you not despair, perhaps, let me suggest, would be if they ran a principled, factual campaign where perhaps they merely documented the liberal government's hypocrisy making the exact same point that Trudeau is merely cynically looking for uh, a majority government uh, and putting Canadians at risk and is a hypocrite, they might make an ad in which they montage Justin Trudeau and other liberal MPs talking about how a pandemic is no time for an election. And at an earlier point when it was politically convenient and expedient for them to say so, they said, we don't want to have an election. Canadians don't want to have an election. It's a pandemic, no election. And then contrast that with the simple fact that, well, now he wants an election because he thinks he can get a majority. Paul, they also made that ad, and nobody watched it. Mm. We are so far down this road, I will sound naive saying this, but I'll say it anyway. I hope for the day when parents tell their children, if, if you dare date a political consultant, you will not be welcome at our dinner table. <laughs> the, you, you know, we, we decades ago, the, the media writers gave them the term spin doctors, so, so it normalized this nonsense. They are professional liars. And, and you know better than I, the amount of money that is made by people who have very cynical minds and create the, the sort of things we're talking about. And, and, and I suspect you're right that they don't look at it the way we look at it. That, that they just look at clicks and, and all those things that don't matter. I'm not advocating boring politics. I, I'm just advocating real government where people do what they say and respect voters as adults. Paul, I, you know, there but for the grace of God, I could see myself in their position. I almost have to constrain myself from see, like, like, you know, if it was my job to get Canadians to know who Aaron O'Toole was, I might make these ads if I was good at my job, you know? I guess I just feel like, again, we can put a pox on the house of every spin doctor and the political machinery and the politicians themselves, but Canadians only engage with their own democracy under great duress and irritation. So the fact that they that our politicians do a dumb dance and perform in slapstick or, or like Trudeau, talk to us like we are little children in order to get through to us, it might say more about us than, than them. I agree. But the, the media also normalizes this stuff. The, yeah. You know, it's, it's just accepted now that paid political operatives appear as so-called analysts on panels on all the TV networks. The journalists are playing this little game that they think is all terribly clever, but they're only helping professional liars lie to voters. And if the media thinks that's good for democracy, I'd like to have a conversation. They need to expose it. If someone makes a crazy ad, tell me who's the company, who's responsible for this garbage. And then people can send emails and phone them and say, stop it. 
It's an excellent point. Listeners might uh, search the Canada Land archives uh, for the name Jeff Ballingall. Paul, thank you. It is tremendously interesting and fascinating and incredibly depressing to speak with you this week. I hope you'll do it again soon. I love chatting with you, Jesse. Thanks a lot. That was Shortcuts. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com and I read everything that you send in. Paul Watson, where can people find you? Where can they find your writing? I have a website. Uh, it's called uh, arcticstarcreativity.com, which is uh, hard to remember. So just Google uh, Paul Watson, an official website, and you'll see some stuff there. I think a lot of people after hearing this are going to want to read what you have to say about war. Uh, can you tell us about the book that you authored? Yeah, it's, it's called Where War Lives. You can still buy it on Kindle. And details of some of the things we've been talking about, anecdotes, are in there. So you get a much better understanding of what I was trying to say. Where War Lives. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Listener, if you like what we do, uh, help us uh, do it. Get ad-free episodes and other stuff by going to canadaland.com slash join or just click on the link in the show notes. It takes about a minute. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to... And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.